hope is quickly becoming one of my favorite uh, virtues to think about. Um, perhaps it's the time in which we live, but uh, I think often we misunderstand hope. Um, hope is not just a sort of confident expectation. Hope is definitely not resignation, just accepting whatever's coming down the line. Hope is an assessment of my future as containing good prospects. You can't have real biblical hope without joy because joy looks ahead when it's hope, it looks ahead to the future and says, ah man, there's good things that are coming my way. I'm anticipating those good things. And of course, biblical hope is founded in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his return and his setting things right. And so as believers, we can look forward to that and not just expect it, but we can have joy in it and, and construe mentally our future as being full of good prospects, things to get excited about. And so I think during our time that hope is something to, uh, to think about and to rejoice in uh, and to, to build our hope because it certainly is not, should not be founded and can't be founded in this life. As believers, our hope goes beyond this life, and yet there still can be confidence and joy in, in what's coming in our future. And so uh, I love that song, A Living Hope Found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn to James chapter 5 this morning. We're getting perilously close to the end of the book of James. So I'm, uh, I've really enjoyed this study, benefited so much from it. I hope you have as well. But James chapter 5. As we get into James 5, uh, thinking big picture about the Bible, you can see the title, Wealth and Wisdom. The Bible seems to have a pretty wide variety of things to say about riches and about material goods and wealth. Maybe you've never thought of it this way, but on the one hand, you have many key biblical figures who are incredibly wealthy. In their time, I'm sure they would have been millionaires or billionaires, right? I mean, you've got Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon. Solomon was one of the richest people to ever live. Others in Scripture are magnificently wealthy, and the Scriptures never condemn them for possessing wealth. They don't denounce that in these people at all. You have many passages in the Old Testament. If you go and read the book of Deuteronomy, other, other books in the Old Testament, you have passages that promise to Israel an increase in material goods. Things will go well financially for them if they'll obey the Lord and follow him. It's a sign of God's blessing on them that their crops will be in abundance. The oil will overflow in their vats, Right? you read the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs lauds hard work. We're meant to work hard, and one of the motivations for working hard is financial gain, that we'll have abundance, that things will go well materially for us. I mean, take this example, Proverbs 22, or if I can uh, figure out how to get this going here. There we go. Is that me or you, Jason? It's okay. Well, maybe you'll have to click through. Proverbs 22 4. Look at this. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. 
Right? So, I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. And so when you start to think about those passages and others like them, then you can understand why some people, depending on which passages you take and what you emphasize, think that Christians can and should pursue wealth and riches as a way of life. And some would even go so far as to say that, that wealth is a sign of God's blessing on believers. On the other hand, you've got passages like this in Matthew 19. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Basically, he's saying it's impossible. And of course, he goes on to say, with, with men, all things are, you know, or this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. But the point of this, according to Jesus, is, man, it's, riches make it difficult to follow Christ because you have to take up your cross and follow him. And so it's hard to have material wealth and be a follower of Christ. Those two things don't often go together, according to Jesus. Along the same lines, I've heard people quote 1 Timothy 6.10. You probably know this phrase in that verse that says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so I've heard people quote that and then say something like, well, it's not actually possessing wealth that is the problem, it's, it's loving wealth, as if that somehow gets us off the hook, as if my heart is not prone to loving material wealth and gain. Oh, I can have a bunch of it. I just can't love it. Oh, that's easy to do. Especially in our culture that makes us believe and trains us to think that we're consumers and life is about getting the most possible resources that you can. So we're hardly in the clear by focusing on our love rather than the possession of riches. And so the bottom line is for followers of Christ, this is tricky. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to navigate this and where we should land and how we should approach material goods if we're going to take the Bible seriously. But for us, we want to bring our loves and our lifestyles under the authority of Christ. And if you're a believer, I know that's your heartbeat and that's your desire and that's what you want. And so we have to do the hard work of understanding where do we fall on this? How do we approach material goods, wealth, and riches? financial resources. And I think that's what this passage is going to help us with in James 5, verses 1 to 6. Now, interestingly, James does this in sort of a fascinating way this morning. And I'll explain to you what he's doing as we go along. But here's what we're going to see this morning. In James 5, 1 through 6, we're going to see two... Oh, I did not change that. So I'm going to, I left the old uh, title on the top there and didn't change it. So I'm going to give you the new one here. Two problems with unwisely spending your life pursuing wealth. Two problems with unwisely spending your life pursuing wealth. Ignore that heading there. Um, two problems with unwisely spending your life pursuing wealth. And the first one of those is right, and you can see that there. If you hoard it, you will lose it in verses 1 to 3. Now I want you to notice in verse 1 of this, how James is using the same phrase he used in chapter 4 and verse 13. Look at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 5. Come now. And look back at verse 13. He says the same thing. Come now, which is very different than the other ways that he's been beginning sections of this book. And he's doing this because these two sections are particularly serious. Serious. 
He has something quite important to say, and he's going to be a bit more harsh about the way he's saying it. Now, both of these passages have to do with someone who is arrogant and someone whose pride expresses itself in the way that they pursue financial resources. I mean, look back to chapter 4 and verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Their goal is to make money, and they're all about that, and they think they can determine how much they make and when they make it. And in James 5 and verse 1, you see here he's talking directly to those sort of people. Come now, you rich. And so there are similarities between these passages. And so some people have taken both of these passages to be speaking to the same group, to, to believers in the church. But I actually think that chapter 4, 13 to 17, is speaking to believers, and chapter 5, 1 to 6, is speaking to unbelievers. The language is, is a little more gentle in chapter 4, and it's quite harsh in this passage, as you will see. And in this passage, it promises judgment to one who pursues financial resources with no thought to God and how that, their acquisition of resources impacts others. So if that's true, then why would James include a section to unbelievers in his letter to believers. Like, why would he do this? Why would he be talking to unbelievers as if they're going to read this letter and as if they're going to be sitting in church listening to this letter taught and read? Why would he do that? Well, as you get to chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, he's going to give some specific instruction to believers in how to respond to injustices done to them. So he's going to outline some injustices in this passage, and then look at chapter 5 and verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And he goes back to saying brothers, and in this he's going to outline when hardships come, when you are exploited, when you are persecuted, when people come after you, who are wealthy and powerful, here's how I want you to respond. And so first, he's going to give an indictment to those people as a way of encouraging believers. This is their end. So it's a warning to them, and it's a comfort to believers, but it's also a warning to us. Because he wants to paint this picture of the wealthy and the powerful as those who we do not want to imitate. I mean, it's quite easy to see people who have tons of financial resources and who use those and manipulate in order to get more and to think, man, I would love to have something like they have, a car or whatever. I'm not going to start naming things. I would love to be able to have the resources that that person has, and we can be attracted to that lifestyle and that way of being and dealing with people. It's easy to admire the rich and powerful, and he knows our hearts are drawn to that. But he wants us to think about their end. What's going to happen if they continue to live this way? We, as believers in Christ, live for something far different from riches. And James wants to expose the folly of living for riches and wealth and teach us that only living for the true and living God is the way to find fulfillment, not the God of money. And so I think that's why he writes this passage to unbelievers, but to believers. 
And we're sort of listening in and learning from what he's saying to these unbelievers here. Now, when you, when you start out in, in chapter 5 and verse 1, when, you, when he says there, come now, you rich, I have to be clear, he's not targeting anyone, everyone who is well off financially, right? What he's doing here when he speaks to the rich is he's condemning those who misuse their wealth. Again, it's a tough needle to thread, but the, the issue here is not necessarily having wealth being well off financially. The issue is misusing that wealth and living for that wealth instead of for the Lord. And he's very clear that when we pursue worldly ways of building wealth and living for wealth, and certainly when these unbelievers do that, it will result in judgment. Look at the rest of verse one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for the miseries that are coming upon you. James is speaking here as a prophet. I mean, this sounds very similar to what you would find in the Old Testament, right? When the prophets are writing both to Israel and to pagan nations. And he's speaking to those who are misusing their wealth. He's calling them to recognize the seriousness of their situation. You think you're living well. You think you've got everything you could ever need, but you need to take a step back and look at your circumstances. You have loved riches, and that love of riches, that misuse of riches, is going to bring you into judgment. It's going to actually bring you to misery, and it'll bring you to misery when you stand before the Lord of the universe, the creator of all, and you answer to him for the way that you have lived with the life that he's given you. And so James, writing to them as a prophet and writing to us to warn us from living this way, wants to make it very clear. It makes no sense to pursue wealth at all costs. It makes no sense to live for money as your primary God. And it makes no sense because of what he says in verses two and three. Look here. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I think you can see why I think he's talking to unbelievers primarily here. And so the real problem here is that the rich are hoarding their wealth. This is how they're misusing it in these verses. They're they're hoarding it. They're getting as much as they can. And that's an insane thing to do because it's not going to last. You can see at the end of verse 3 what I read there, that they have laid up treasure. They're stockpiling it. And James says specifically in verse 3, they've done this in the last days. Now we'll get back to that last days in a second here. But when you hear this whole passage Uh, verses 2 and 3, it should probably remind you of another passage like this, the the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. It sounds very similar. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so the rich are stockpiling resources for themselves, and it's a, it's a silly investment strategy. 
Riches rot. They don't last. Clothes deteriorate. Even gold and silver will decay. It's a wasted investment to spend your life trying to build inordinate amounts of wealth here on this earth. It's temporary. You have one life, and it is a lost life to live for money. And it's a lost life because of the time in which we live. Go back to verse 3. I told you we would go back to this. You have laid up treasure in the last days. It's specifically silly to lay up treasure in the last days. Now, the last days, we typically think of that as the end times period that's coming in the future when, the, when Christ will return. And that is an element of the last days, but the, most of the New Testament talks about the last days as the time in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And none of us know how long this time period's going to last. We're in the middle of it, but we don't know when it's going to end. We're given our lifespan in the middle of the last days. And when the last days end, either for you and I through death or for you and I through the coming of Christ, then we will stand before God and give an account for our lives. Life is short. I mean, that reminds us of James 4, verse 14, right? Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And so when we stand before God and we give an account, especially for these unbelievers, of the way we have spent our short temporary lives in the last days, knowing that he's going to return or that we're going to die, these very resources that we accrue and we, we amass and we live for will testify against us in those days. The end of verse 3 again, or the, the beginning of verse 3, sorry. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. For these wealthy landowners, these unbelievers, when they stand before the Lord, you almost get this picture that their hordes of wealth and their clothes and their gold and their silver will be laid out before them and they will be rusted and decayed and destroyed and they will stand as evidence against these people that they lived their lives for this. They wasted their lives pursuing financial resources. They will testify against them in the judgment. Now, here's the dilemma for us as Christians, right? We know there's nothing inherently wrong with having a house or a boat or shoes, new shoes. I got new shoes for my birthday, and I like them. Right? It's, there's nothing wrong with having nice things, with new things, with financial resources. And we know that, but we don't want to live for financial resources. We don't want to make riches our God. We see the end of what happens to people that do this, and we say, I don't want that. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be like that. I don't want my heart attracted to riches like this. I know they're going to burn up. I know they're not going to last. So it's not worth the investment. So what do we do? So how do we approach this? How do we avoid imitating the ways of the rich 
even if we don't consider ourselves rich and well off. We have to remember here that the primary issue is not the particular amount of wealth that you may have or the resources that you have, but the vice that he's describing here in their hearts is is something that comes from inside of them out. It's a matter of affections and loves, and it is a disposition of the heart. The problem with these people here is an inordinate love for material possessions. It's an immoderate love of things. They hoard things because they love them, and they love them too much. I mean, this is well beyond liking a new pair of shoes and appreciating them. This is my heart worships these things and is drawn to these things. And the, the, the bottom line for us as believers is this can display itself in those who have many financial resources, or it can display itself in someone who doesn't have a bank account that's bursting at the seams. We can love things even when we don't have a lot of things. And I think sometimes those without a lot of things are more tempted to put our desires and our affections into things. And so I would say for believers to try to correct this this vice that these unbelievers are falling into, the way we're tempted toward this, I would say there's there's a little phrase that I like to use When I'm thinking about this, receive with gratitude and give with pleasure. Receive with gratitude and give with pleasure. Recognizing that these are gifts, everything is a gift given by God. No matter what I have, it is given by God. The smallest resource that I have to the most abundant resource that I have, it's given by the Lord and it's His And I'm a steward of it. And when I recognize that, then on the other end, I receive with gratitude, but then I am quick and easy and ready to give my resources away. I hold them lightly in my hands and I give abundantly to others. I love how this one author, Rebecca DeYoung, put this uh, regarding how we approach wealth and the the antidote to loving and hoarding financial resources. Here's what she said. Generous people are defined primarily in terms of their inner detachment from material wealth and goods. They may care about their possessions, right? The the answer is not to be flippant about your possessions, about what God's given you. It's not to say, wow, none of it matters. I'm just going to let it go to pot, right? It's not, that's not the answer. They may care about their possessions, but they do not have an immoderate love of possessing them. There is a rule or limit to what they want to acquire and what they need to retain for themselves. The generous, according to Aquinas, are thus ready to give with pleasure when and where they ought. Generosity's loose grip makes it easy to give things away. Receive with gratitude, give with pleasure. All material blessings come from the hand of the Lord, and we ought to receive them with thankfulness and recognize that they're all gifts of grace. Then, because they're gifts of grace, and I'm a steward of those things, I turn around and I give them away with pleasure, with joy that I can bless someone else with the gifts that God has given me.
Now, not only will the giving away of resources serve your own soul, serve my soul, but it will keep you from a second problem here. Again, the top is wrong, (laughs) the four problems. The second problem that we have here, the second reason to not spend your life unwisely pursuing material wealth is this. If you exploit others, you will answer to God. In verse 4, James indicates a bit of a shift here, right? He says, behold. And so it's almost like he's telling us I'm starting a connected section, but a new section and a new discussion here. And so if the first misuse, remember the rich are those who are misusing their resources. If the first misuse is that they're hoarding them, then the second misuse is that they're exploiting other people. They're not serving others with their money. They're using others to obtain and to keep their financial resources. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, I get it. Maybe, maybe you think there's no more... And there's no verse of the Bible that applies less to me than this verse. I hardly have harvesters working in my fields. I don't have a field. My, my backyard hardly qualifies as a field, especially when you factor in the swing and the children's play area. I cannot grow very much back there, right? But the reality here and what he's getting at, certainly with these wealthy, rich landowners, but our hearts can be tempted this way too, is that when we have an immoderate love of riches and of wealth, that very often leads us to exploit others. We use people in small and big ways to get resources and to keep resources. So what's the problem here in verse 4? Well, there are these wealthy landowners, very powerful men, who own lots of property, and they hire day laborers out to harvest their crops. The economy clearly was quite a bit different during this time. The the structure of law was set up differently. And so because they're wealthy, because they had land, because they had influence, they had power, they would hire these day laborers out, and then they would just avoid paying them. So they would say, I'll pay you at the end of the day, and then maybe they wouldn't pay them at the end of the day, or they wouldn't pay them at all. Maybe they'd wait till the next morning, or maybe they would never give them the money that they said they would give them. And the problem with this for these day laborers is many of these men worked this job and brought home money at the end of the day just so they could feed their family. Literally, they're living day to day. And if they don't bring home money at the end of the day for their work, they can't pay their family. Missing one day's wages has a dramatic impact on them. And so the core issue in verse 4 is maintaining and pursuing wealth and riches at the expense of another person. It's using someone else to grow your stash of cash, right? And the Bible is unequivocally clear about how God thinks of using others to grow your wealth. Just a few verses from the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. 
Seems like not a big deal. I'll just pay him in the morning. But God says this is a matter of injustice to use this person to gain wealth for yourself. Deuteronomy 24, 15. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Jeremiah 22. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. The thing is, is that when the rich and wealthy and when we, in smaller big ways, use our resources to exploit others or participate in exploiting others through the use of resources, it does not go unnoticed. That's what he's saying here. Look at the rest of verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Injustice has always garnered God's attention. He cares and he is concerned about the poor. He's concerned any time there is injustice done. I mean, think back to the early chapters of the Bible. The same language is used here to describe Cain and Abel. And the Lord said to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And injustice was done, and God sees it and knows it. He's very aware of it. What about the children of Israel in Exodus 2? During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You can even see sometimes what happens in the end, the end game of this sort of exploitation. Look at verse 6 in James 5. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. He has no recourse, the day laborer does, to this rich and powerful landowner. And many of these Christians would have fit into this category. Now, with all of this exploitation and misuse of of resources, it's very interesting in verse 4 that James calls God the Lord of hosts. And he does that for a particular reason. You could say Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, because the hosts are his, his soldiers, his armies, And when James uses this here, it presents God as a military deliverer. And James wants these believers to understand, and us as well, that God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed, and he rushes to the aid of those who have had injustice done to them, particularly of his people. And this would have been very helpful to these believers. I think it's helpful to us as well. I mean, when we get into the passage next week of chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, and you see God calling us to patience and endurance in the midst of persecution and difficulty and exploitation, thinking of God as the God of armies and the Lord of hosts is helpful to our hearts. Be patient and wait for him. I think this is helpful for us today. I mean, there are so many reasons in our culture for us to be fearful. 
right? There, there seem to be attacks on those who follow Christ. And there are, I think, genuine attacks on those of us who believe the Bible and are committed to the Bible and want to follow Christ. Biblical teaching doesn't play well in the broader culture. And so I think if things get worse in our country, if it gets more difficult to faithfully hold to what the Bible teaches, this is a passage that can be helpful to us. I mean, we're fearful that we're going to lose religious liberty here. Things are going to become more difficult, right? As the powerful and the wealthy seek to exploit those of us who don't seem to have any recourse against them. And I think we want to do everything we can to preserve those things like religious liberty, but just a reminder, and I think what James would say is our ultimate hope is not found in that. That's not the end game. We may lose that at some point, and we can't give in to the ways of the world and fight and scream like unbelievers. God is our Lord of hosts, and he sees when injustice is done, and he will rush to the aid of his people. And so we can wait on him and be patient and endure. He will protect, and he will guide. And that can be an encouragement to us no matter what happens here in the next 10, 20 years, or however, however long it takes. And so I think these words here, written to these rich and powerful unbelievers, can be a comfort to us as we see that God is our Lord of armies. But they're also a warning to us. Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I want you to notice, he says here, you have lived on the earth. And so James is making sure that we understand and they understand they are living a very temporary life on this earth. They are living for life now, for these few short years that they have. They're not thinking about the future. They'll do whatever it takes to make money and to hold on to it now. I mean, it sounds like the words of Jesus. Again, Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. We read this earlier, but look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's a whole parable in Luke 12 that I would encourage you to read at some point. It's the parable of the guy who lays up for himself treasure on earth and puts all of his possessions in building bigger barns. I encourage you to go back and read that. Um, I don't really have time to read the whole thing right now. But this parable, you can see the end of it here. Let me get to the end here. There we go. Oops. So is the one, it says here, who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. His soul will be required of him because he's lived for temporary life here. And I want you to notice what James says this is like. Look at the end of verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Right now, Bethany is reading to Gray, our four-year-old, Charlotte's Web. And she does this to, when each of the kids turn four, she sits down and reads the whole book with them. And it's, it's very fun. 
And I happened to be sitting there this week. I don't know if you've ever read Charlotte's Web, but it's this story about this children's story about this pig who uh, gets saved from becoming bacon by a spider. It's a wonderful story. So, but I was sitting there listening to it this week, and there was this part that she read that it's one of my favorite parts in the whole book, and it's when this pig, Wilbur, finds out why they're feeding him so much during the summer. I'll read it to you. As the days went by, Wilbur grew and grew. He ate three big meals a day. He spent long hours lying on his side, half asleep, dreaming pleasant dreams. He enjoyed good health and he gained a lot of weight. One afternoon, when Fern, the little girl, was sitting on her stool, the oldest sheep walked into the barn and stopped to pay a call on Wilbur. Hello, she said, seems to me you're putting on weight. Yes, I guess I am, replied Wilbur. At my age, it's a good idea to keep gaining. We should put that somewhere on a phrase, you know, like on a sign or something. That's great. Just the same, I don't envy you, said the old sheep. You know why they're fattening you up, don't you? No, said Wilbur. Well, I don't like to spread bad news, said the sheep, but they're fattening you up because they're going to kill you. That's why. They're going to what, screamed Wilbur. Fern grew rigid on her stool. Kill you. Turn you into smoked bacon and ham, continued the old sheep. Almost all young pigs get murdered by the farmer as soon as real cold weather sets in. There's regular conspiracy around here to kill you at Christmas time. When a pig is to be butchered, everybody helps. I'm an old sheep and I see the same thing, same old business, year after year. And I know it's a children's story and I love that section, but man, I'm telling you, that's exactly the language that James is using here to describe those of us, those in the world, who give themselves to financial resources and live for wealth. They're like a pig who is fattening itself up to end up in the frying pan. They have fattened themselves for the day of slaughter. And James is using this image for them and for us. And he's using it to jar us out of our complacency and to say this is serious business. We are accountable to God, the God of heaven, the God who sees injustice for how we use our resources. Now, I think this is a particular temptation for most of us, I would say for me, for sure, because we live in such an affluent society. Our whole society is built on free market capitalism, on being able to wisely invest your time and talent and make money. And it's a wonderful thing. And it's brought loads of people out of poverty. And it's, it's really, in many ways, a gift from the Lord. But there are dark sides to this as believers that we can think of ourselves as consumers and those who are here primarily to make and spend money. And we begin to very subtly shift our loves and affections to resources and to wealth. We've experienced the blessing of God in many ways. And so what I would say for us is, don't be like these rich landowners. Receive with gratitude and give with pleasure. Receive everything as a gift from the Lord and give away as much as you can because you've received it from the Lord's hand. And then, as we'll see next week, patiently trust the Lord with the outcome. Let's pray. 
Father, we're thankful for these words. They're, they're harsh, they're straightforward, but Lord, I pray that they would jar us out of our complacency regarding our material wealth and resources. Lord, we're thankful for what you've given us. We have so much. We live such comfortable lives in so many ways, and we're grateful for that, Father. And yet, at the same time, guard our hearts from hoarding and from exploiting and from loving temporary material goods. Help us to receive everything as a gift from you and to give with pleasure to those around us. We thank you for our time in your word. We thank you for your grace to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.